Hebrews 2 is where we are this morning, focusing on the first four verses. Verse 1, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. We're in this series that we began a few weeks ago, walking through the book of Hebrews over the next year to hear what the writer of Hebrews said to the early church in and around Rome, some parts of Italy in the first century, that Jesus is better than whatever you're chasing. He's better than a retreat back into Judaism or into apathy or false gods. He's better than all of that. And he opens this second chapter with these words, for this reason, which draws our minds back to what we walked through the last few weeks. What we saw him boldly declare in chapter 1 of Hebrews, in which he comes out of the gates declaring the supremacy of Jesus. God's spoken to his people through the Old Testament. Now he's speaking through the Son, the creator, sustainer of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the redemption accomplishing Son of God who is also higher and greater than all the angels. He created the angels. He rules over the angels. The angels, in fact, we saw last week, were created to serve as ministering agents for God to the people of God. Jesus came as a human, not as an angel, to save not fallen angels, but fallen image bearers. As real and as amazing as angels are, they are not the focus of redemption. So after the author states his case for the superiority of Jesus over angels, in this passage he gives a concern, an argument, and a warning. The concern comes right at the beginning. In fact, he calls for their full, undivided attention. We must pay attention all the more. Strong, strong language. To have your mind and heart fully focused on what he's about to say. Why? So they won't drift away. The language is the language of a boat drifting down a stream or down a current. If you've ever gone canoeing or fishing and you've had a, a small canoe or kayak or, or small fishing boat to tie up to a dock or to bring on the bank. And as you're getting out, you drop the rope or it slips away from you. And you're helplessly watching it just drift away. And you're like, come on, wind, blow. <laughs> current, bring it back. And then you have to go get another boat to get in the water to go and fetch that boat back. That's the idea here of drifting away. It's become untethered, unanchored. And now it's allowed just to kind of float along in whatever way the current may take you, whatever way the wind may take you. The Christian life is not a life that you can just drift in. You're, you're either living mindful of Jesus and doing things like Paul said in Philippians 2, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 28-29, we, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Or like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling 
in the Lord's work because you know your labor is not in vain. So we're fully mindful of Christ, experiencing the reality of Christ and living like that or we are drifting away. There is no cruise control in our walks with Jesus. Cruise control is drifting away. Our natural bent is away from God and it takes the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in us to stay steadfast to the task or, or else we drift away. Going through the motions, being unengaged, coasting, cruise control are all downward trends. As C.S. Lewis wrote in the Screwtape Letters, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. This is the post-COVID church concern. There are a lot of agencies in our culture that depend on people showing up, volunteering, helping, serving. Have people become so accustomed to being disengaged from the community of God's people that it's become the new normal? And to re-engage is going to take a work of God's Spirit, a transformation by God's Spirit. I mean, if church is just turning on your computer and watching, right? If that's your understanding of what church is, and, and I have to say, if that's your understanding definition of church, there's a lot better things to watch than a church service, right? God's intended for church to be much more than turning on a screen and watching and being passively disengaged or passively engaged. Um, but if that's your definition of church, then it's going to take something working inside of you to, to re-engage. But, but isn't the letter of Hebrews going to spend a lot of time talking about entering our rest? Isn't that a metaphor for our Christian life, resting in Jesus? That, that kind of sounds relaxing. That sounds like a lazy man river and in an inflatable raft, just kind of coasting along. Isn't that rest? Well, we'll get to that later in Hebrews. Resting, trusting in the completed work of Jesus. Jesus did the work we can't do. But you won't find any place in Scripture where resting in Jesus leads to laziness or apathy or drifting. In fact, this is the first of about six warning passages in the letter of Hebrews, more than any other letter in the New Testament. Warnings to believers who are tempted to drift away. For these hearers in the first century is drifting back into Judaism, a place that they were safe in, a place that they knew, a place that possibly wouldn't invite persecution. For, for us in post-COVID church, it might be drifting away from engagement with the community that God's put us in. Or drifting away into apathy or disinterest. And the warning passages of Hebrews tell us, re-engage, stay engaged, are there consequences? Our labors are driven by the completed work of Jesus. So the passages I just read a little while ago, Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The very next passage, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who's working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. We work because God has worked and is working in us to make that possible. Paul's mission statement for his life in Colossians 1 follows his proclamation of the redemptive work of Jesus, which also happens to be another warning passage in Colossians 1.21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressing your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death 
to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. And I'm laboring and suffering to make him known so that everyone can be presented mature in Christ Jesus. The admonition at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 to be steadfast and immovable follows the entire chapter where Paul's laying out why the resurrection is essential to our faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no hope. We are to be pitied. This is a, a hopeless waste of time. This thing we do called the church, which follows Paul's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, how Jesus really did these things, and he was seen by eyewitnesses. And if all of this is true, then we give our lives to it. And if it's not true, then just quit. What's the point? In fact, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, you get another warning passage. Now, I want to make clear, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This is a reality. You, you can believe in vain. You can shift away from the hope of the gospel. You can drift. And it's either one of those two things happening inside of us all the time. We're either moving toward Jesus with Jesus, working and laboring and striving with his life inside of us, making it all happen, or we are untethered. We are unanchored. We are in a very dangerous place. This doesn't happen because you and I, usually it doesn't happen because you and I come to a fork in the road where we have to choose. I want to intentionally follow Jesus. I'm going to intentionally disavow Jesus, reject him. It, it usually doesn't happen like that. For a large majority, it's simply we've left our first love. Something else has grabbed the attention of our heart. The fire that burned bright at one time has been reduced to a smoldering ember. It might be because you've been in this for a long time. And it's become kind of routine and maybe a little boring. It's like a marriage that hits a certain year. It's probably different for every couple. Year 15, 20, 30. And the passion that used to burn bright, the romance that used to be so present, hasn't been refreshed, hasn't been rekindled, and the couple's just existing side by side. Roommates, partners, managing kids, managing life. And it's not because at some point in time they were like, I hate this person. But it's because at some point in time they quit pursuing this person. They, they quit working to keep that fire of passion burning between them. It might be because this drift that you're experiencing or attempted to experience, it might be because it's become familiar. The liturgies and reminders of our faith, the repetition. You show up on Sunday, it's kind of the same thing every week. We kind of do the same thing every week. You, you open your Bible, it's, you're reading the same book every day. Your prayer times, it kind of feels the same. And these liturgies are intended intentionally for God to use to shape us, inform us, and mold us as a people. We keep coming back to them. It's not like we have a new book to preach from. It's not like we get a new gospel. But we, we keep being reminded of the living active work and work of Jesus and Spirit of God alive inside of us. But when you're drifting, it feels kind of routine and common. It's like another, another habit of your life you don't think about, like brushing your teeth. 
are drying off after you take a shower. Does anybody ever really think about how you do that? No, you just do it. It's the same exact way every single day. Or driving a car. I discovered this while teaching uh, teenage daughters how to drive. I do like a thousand things while I'm driving. I don't think about it. Until I have to teach somebody from scratch. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a lot to think about. And they're like, we know. We don't like this. But you keep working with them. And over time, it becomes habit to them. And they get confident. And they feel safe. And so for some, maybe it's just become routine and common. Or maybe, certainly, I mean, this could be true today. Maybe we're just distracted. I mean, we, we, we have these devices. Now we get phantom buzzes on our back pockets, our hips. Is, oh, what? Oh, my phone's not even in my pocket. This is how much these things are shaping us. We think there's things happening that's not happening. So, of course, they're going to distract us in crazy ways. What if the main strategy of our enemy is simply to keep us distracted? We can't even focus on the bigger, deeper, more important parts of life because we're constantly chasing the fleeting and temporary. I mean, Twitter has a thing called fleets now. Fleeting. It's here and it's gone and we're just chasing stuff like that. Instead of pulling away from the distractions to focus on Jesus. And all of this can lead to drift. Again, we're not outright rejecting Jesus, but we're just no longer mindful of Him. Our hearts are no longer inflamed by Him. Like, when was the last time you would say, Jesus had all of your mind and heart? When's the last time your emotions were moved by high and lofty and beautiful thoughts of Jesus? Or have you left your first love? Have you drifted away? Certainly we don't want to fall into the trap of do more, try harder, as though we're trying to save ourselves apart from Jesus. We've consistently, since we've been a church, reject that form of religion. Just do more, try harder, save yourself, fix yourself. God help us to not... Also fall into the, well, I'm not going to do anything because I'm, I'm just resting and trusting Jesus. Or everything has to be just right before I'll engage. I have to be 100% motivated before I engage. I have to feel 100% everything before I engage. I have to be 100% healed of all my past wounds before I'll engage. I have to be 100% in love with all the people I do this with. I have to feel 100% confident before I will engage. There's balance in all these things, but the concern of the disengaged is, are you drifting away from this great salvation? And the writer expresses this concern. It's very pastoral. He says, so that we will not drift away. Some of the warning passage, he will say you, but here he says we. This can happen to me too. And then he gives us an argument and a warning. And the argument is one of my favorite arguments in the Bible, the how much more argument. If this is true, this lesser reality is true and real, how much more is this greater reality true and real? So verse 2 is the lesser reality. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, the message spoken through angels, the writers referring back to the Old Covenant, spoken through angels, as we saw last week, it was common Jewish tradition that the angels were involved in the giving of the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law. Stephen referred to this in Acts 7.38. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our ancestors. Again, you can't read that in the Old Testament, but it was tradition handed down amongst the Jews. 
Paul referred to this in Galatians 3.19. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. It's not clear how they were involved. An angel was at the burning bush. There are many, many appearances of angels within the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch. And so whatever way angels were involved, it was understood in Jewish tradition that they were involved in establishing the Old Testament law and covenants. And the Old Testament law wasn't a suggestion. Well, just do this if you wake up this morning and feel like doing it. It's a good thing to do. It was commanded with life and death consequences. Toward the end of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible called the Law, Moses says this just before he dies, just before they're going to enter the land of promise. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 30. For I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commands, statutes, and ordinances, so that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not listen, or you're led astray to bow and worship to other gods and to serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish, and you will not prolong your days in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. This is after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Why are they wandering in the wilderness 40 years? Because they made the wrong choice 40 years earlier. So that generation who just saw all of their parents and grandparents die over 40 years, not entering the land of promise, they're going to go into the land of promise and choose life and experience everything God had been promising his people from Genesis 12, right? No! This is the rest of the Old Testament. Them constantly choosing not life but death. Repeatedly. Which is part of what God ordained to show us that the law can't save the law was pointing to someone else. Do this and live, though. Do this and don't die. This is the, the Old Testament. This is the law. This playing out in the life of God's people. And this is the life the listeners of Hebrews are tempted to go back into. It's the life that they knew. God's people knew for thousands of years. It feels safer. The only problem, it's no longer how God is working among His people. That law has expired. It's it's invalid because it's been fulfilled and it's been finished in Jesus Christ, as we saw in Hebrews 1. It was amazing and all God intended for it to be, but it was never the final expression of how God wanted to live among his people. That final expression is Jesus, the gospel, the new covenant, God's spirit coming to indwell his people, the church, the coming together of Jew and Gentile, the completed work of Jesus. And so here's how the how much more argument works. If disobeying or dismissing the Old Testament covenant given by angels carried life and death consequences, how much greater the danger is to neglect the greater revelation given through Jesus and his great salvation. You're tempted, Hebrew people, to be more devoted to angels if they brought a law with severe consequences if you didn't obey. How much worse will it be for you if you walk away from Jesus and his great salvation back to Judaism and angels. The salvation, verse 3, spoken of by the Lord, confirmed to us by those who heard him. It says in verse 3, this is the evidence that Paul didn't write Hebrews, because we know Paul heard directly from Jesus in Acts chapter 9. But the writer of Hebrews heard the words of Jesus from those who heard Jesus, second generation. But the testimony and story has been passed along. And this gospel came in word. It's a message declared by Jesus, declared by others since Jesus, declared by us. That's what I'm doing right now. 
It's also a message, truth proclamations about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's always a message. But it's also accompanied by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts given by the Holy Spirit. Thessalonians 1.5 Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full assurance. Verifications given by the Holy Spirit that these truths proclaimed are in fact true. We see it throughout the book of Acts, for instance. Or think of the story in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is teaching in a house, Peter's house, and is so full they can't, a guy who's paralyzed on a mat, his four friends can't get to Jesus, so they lower him through the roof. And if you remember the story in Mark 2, Jesus says to the man, the first thing he says to the man is not, you're healed, get up and walk, but son, your sins are forgiven. And he knows that in the minds of the religious leaders, he's doing something only God can do. And so he asks them, what's harder to do? To tell this man his sins are forgiven or to tell him get up and walk? They don't answer. It's a rhetorical question. And he says, so that you will know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, get up and walk. If I can do what is seemingly the harder thing, heal someone, because when you say, son, your sins are forgiven, you don't see anything happen. If I can do the seemingly harder thing, then certainly I have the power to do the seemingly uh, uh, easier thing, to actually forgive him of his sins. Jesus' words... Son, your sins are forgiven, are verified through his power. Get up, take up your mat, and go home. We don't believe here at the crossing that God's power to give evidence of his gospel message through signs and wonders and various miracles and the distribution of all the gifts of the Spirit that the Spirit desires for us, we don't believe that that ended in the first century. And even though that has been abused by some in the church today, Usually because they're seeking it rather than trusting the Spirit to give it, which is what the writer of Hebrews says the Spirit does. The Spirit is in charge of distributing these gifts. So, so even though it's abused today, that doesn't mean we don't, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, still earnestly desire these gifts and earnestly desire demonstrations of God's power as verification of God's message and God's gospel. And although there are some brothers and sisters in Christ who also love Jesus and believe these kinds of evidences died out in the first century when Scripture was completed, we don't agree that that's what the Bible teaches, nor is that the best explanation for what has happened over the last 2,000 years and what is happening all over the world today. When God's power and love show up in signs and wonders and miracles, you can't just dismiss all of that as demonic or psychological manipulation. Certainly some of it can be. Too much of how God's Spirit, too much of how God's Spirit decides to move in advancing His kingdom and give glory to Christ, as it has always been done in the history of the church. So we say, whatever you have for us, Father, we submit and we ask you to give whatever you want to give us, to give us power to proclaim your gospel message and to verify it through however you want to verify it as demonstrations of your love and power to people far from you, to your people. We submit to whatever you have for us, God. We don't want to shy away from that simply because it's been abused or because it makes us feel uncomfortable because it's not our experience. We want to be in a place where God is in control of how he decides to move and not us in our interpretive rules of how to handle the Bible. This is God's great salvation. He runs the show. He did the work. He accomplished everything necessary for us to be his people and have life in him. 
This is foundational to who we are as Christians and who we are as a church. All the amazing things that we want to see happen in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our nation, our state, all the incredible works of healthy marriages and restored families and, and a foster system that's not so broken, racial injustice that's not so present, racial animosity that is, that is melting away because God's love is spreading. Lies transform, substance abuse. God, get rid of it in our nation. Families imprisoned by substance abuse. Constantly hear stories of this. God, we want to see it ended. We want to see it gone. All that we desire to see the fullness of God's kingdom in our lifetime, where God puts us, begins with this foundation, God's great salvation. In us, in you, and then everything else moves from that. But this has to be right. If this isn't right, then we're just religious people. We're just lost people pretending to be good. So the warning is real. To neglect this great salvation brings deadly consequences. But if you've reduced Christianity just a way to live life here and now that, that might make life better, more enjoyable, that might give you a community of people to care for you, that's one good option, maybe the best option, but it's just something you do. If salvation to you isn't great, if salvation for you isn't in fact life or death, not just eternal life or death, but it's definitely that, but even now, John 10.10, 10, a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Do you really live as though this is true? That with Jesus there is life, abundant life, eternal life here and now. And apart from Jesus, there is death and destruction. It's that stark. God told Adam and Eve, if you commit one sin, you die. And that was true for them. They committed one sin and death entered creation. They physically eventually died. They were cut off from God, separated a form of death. When they were kicked out of the garden, there was death between them and each other and in death between them and creation. There was tension and a brokenness that was introduced. We don't live with those same stark consequences. One sin equals death. But that's only because God is incredibly kind, patient, and gracious, not willing that any would perish. He's long-suffering. The reason Jesus hasn't returned is because God has more people he wants to bring into the family that won't perish but will have life in him. He's incredibly gracious and patient. He gives us room to chase what our heart desires. This is the passive wrath of God. Chase what your heart desires, even when your heart doesn't desire more. With a plan that he's, if you're his, he's bringing you back. And some in this room can testify to that. As you were chasing other things, and Jesus brought you back and keeps bringing you back. And we'll get more into this as we walk through the other warning passages in Hebrews, but just to kind of give you an overview. General, genuine salvation cannot be lost. Genuine salvation cannot be lost. The warning passages, passages are intended to help us know if what we have is genuine. It's not to help God know. He knows. It's to help us know. There are many who have the appearance of genuine salvation, maybe even a public profession, a baptism, church membership. They're in ministry. It seems to be real, but over time, 
it proves, in fact, not to be real. First John 2, they went out from us because they were not of us. Because if they were of us, they would continue with us. But they went out because they were not truly of us. So how you respond to these warning passages helps you discern if what you have is real. Do you hear these passages throughout the New Testament and just dismiss them? Oh, that must be applying to somebody else. Apathy? I don't, I don't care to deal with that question. Maybe you get angry and defensive. I don't want to think about that. Because I, I might, in fact, be insecure about that. Do you do more and try harder? Okay, I'm gonna, today I'm going to prove what I have is real, God. Or do you respond? But for the grace go I. But for the grace of God go I. Do you once again run to Jesus and fall before him for his grace and mercy to affirm what you hope is real? Why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Well, I heard the gospel message and I believe that, that's, that's how the gospel became a reality for you. But why are you a Christian? Why did you hear believe? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents brought me to church. So everyone who grows up in a Christian home becomes a Christian. Everyone who grew up in your home is loving and following Jesus right now. Well, I went to a revival meeting or a church camp and I heard the gospel and believed. So everyone that goes to those kinds of meetings becomes a Christian? Why you and not them? Well, it just made sense. I heard the gospel and it, it, just, it just made sense to me. It appeared logical. So, so smart people figure it out. If you're smart enough, you can receive salvation. All smart people are Christians. Well, I mean, look at me. Of course God saved me. Look how amazing I am. Of course he wanted me on the team. Look at all I've done for him. You think you're that amazing compared to a holy and righteous God? Let's take all your amazingness on one side of the scale and let's put all your sin on the other side. Let's see how that works out. We could go through this all morning, but let me just jump to the answer. Why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? The real answer is we don't know. Why me and not someone else who had the same experiences, grew up in the same kind of house, went to the same kind of Bible meetings and church camps, vacation Bible schools, heard the same gospel message? I don't know why I'm saved and it wasn't some other people who were there as well. It's only by His grace. That's it. I, I don't have an answer. It's only by His grace. There's not one part of it I can boast about. All I can do is boast about Jesus and give Him the credit and glory. He saved me, and if I wake up tomorrow believing and loving Jesus, it's because of His grace. It's not because of anything I did today to make that happen tomorrow. It's His grace. It's not because I've become more awesome or you've become more awesome. I'm still very broken and sinful. Ask my family. They see it all. I don't deserve salvation anymore today than on the first day of walking with Jesus. It's only by His grace. And if you get that, if you see your salvation as mainly about Jesus' power, love, mercy, and grace at work in your life, and when you hear 
this warning, don't drift or else. Your response is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because but for your grace, I would. I would drift. But for his grace, I might be a fake. But for his grace, I wouldn't have this great salvation. We fall once again on him and his grace and mercy and trust him to save us and keep us. If it's up to me, if it's up to you, it's not going to happen. So this is why the writer opens this, this chapter when he says, We must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. What have we heard? Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. This is what we've heard. This is where our mind and attention and heart go to Jesus. And if that's your heart this morning, then in a little while, sing with boldness and confidence and assurance. Come to the table with joy and hope. This work of Jesus is for you, I believe. By God's grace, I still believe. It's life and joy and hope. It's mine, and he is mine, and I am his. And if your heart this morning is still distant and distracted and cold and unaffected and angry and defensive, may God have mercy on you and give you the ability to repent before it's too late. That's how you should hear this warning. That's how it should fall on you if that's your heart. Over the years of being a pastor, I've heard and seen a lot of varied responses to these warning passages. Some take the approach that you don't question your salvation. Once you're in, you're in. Why question it? I made a profession of faith. I got baptized and joined the church. And I've seen that taken to the extreme of, I was actually born a Christian. Okay. Jesus said you had to be born again, but I guess you're the exception. <laughs> or the extreme of, I made a profession, I can just do whatever I want, and while I'm in the midst of just rebellion and sin, I'm still claiming to be a, a, a follower of Jesus because of this one-time thing I did 15 years ago. Of course, the other ditch to avoid is you never live with assurance. So you hear these warning passages and you... And you you say, well, I can actually lose genuine salvation or not really ever know if, I, if I'm genuinely saved. And some are left living in a genuine fear that they never know if they've done enough. Or sometimes weird rules are created about what sins and when does sin trigger the loss of genuine salvation. And hypothetically, you can be lost and saved and lost and saved and, and just kind of bounce back and forth. You have to do something to the, with these passages to those who are genuinely His, these passages help keep us humble and dependent on God's grace. They help keep us sober to fight against sin and never become comfortable with sin. They help keep us grateful for this great salvation we received. It's all of Jesus. He's so good and kind and gracious to save me. They help keep us devoted and giving our lives away over and over for the one who gave His life away to redeem us. But to those who are only religious, the hope and prayer is that these passages will wake them up and see maybe they have professed Christ once before. And although they've tasted the goodness of God's grace because being in a religious community, they've never really come alive in Jesus. And by God's grace, we hope and pray they will be turned inside out by Jesus' love.
and their heart lit on fire for him. So they will know him and love him and pursue him with all they are. That's how we pray for these passages to follow the religious who are not really his. Otherwise, their destiny lies in Matthew 7, another warning passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we prophesy in your name? Drive up demons in your name? Do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. There is a self-deception about salvation that will last all the way to the day of judgment. And these ministry people with all these good works, thinking they've done them for him, he will say, I never knew you. So I want to give a few minutes for the Spirit of God to speak to your hearts and minds, for you to hear him and listen to how he's speaking, what he's saying to you about this morning passage. And I want to pray. I want to ask for those who are genuinely his for a deep assurance and peace and confidence that leads to worship and joy just to fall on you. And for you to take a, a sober look at how you may be chasing sin, but you're still his. How you may be chasing idols, but you're still his. How you may be, be tempted to drift away, but you're still his. And the Father overwhelms you with his love once again. And then I want to pray for those who aren't his and are a part of our community. And they believe they are genuinely saved, but you're really not. For the Spirit of God to upset you from the inside out in such a way that you can't leave here today without talking to one of us as elders or someone else to make sure that you're trusting and believing in Jesus and his gospel. So take a few moments just to listen to the Spirit. And then I'll pray. Father, I pray that you would affirm in the hearts of everyone here whatever the Spirit of God has been saying to your children, Father. May you 
speak words of affirmation and love. Because of Jesus, we are always dearly loved sons and daughters of our Father in Heaven. And maybe we've been chasing sin. Maybe we've been letting our heart drift. And so there's some discipline that's happening. But that's a good thing because you discipline those you love. You discipline your kids and we're your kids because of Jesus. So even in the discipline, let us feel your love. The love of the Father, the affirmation of the Father. And Father, I pray for those who are really questioning their salvation right now. And not sure that they have ever come alive in Christ Jesus. Our hearts never really passionately pursued Jesus, trusted in Him, turned from sin. In whatever ways the Spirit is making that clear to someone in this room or someone watching, the Spirit of God, speak life to that person through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You tell us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but made alive in Christ Jesus. By grace through faith, we are saved. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. So let them turn from their sins and see the beauty of Jesus, the work of Jesus as sufficient for their salvation. And let them today trust in Jesus and come alive. Come alive. All this good work you want to do in us, do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.